Well, good morning, Kingsway. Thank you so much for tuning in. I know each week uh, seems to be uh, just a little bit different these days, and I know things are very fluid. And I'm so excited that you've chosen to spend some time this morning uh, participating in this form of our community right now. I know we have said it, and we will continue to say it, that we do not believe that the church is a building. It is a community of people, a movement of people on mission towards God. And so John 10.10 does not change. Our mission does not change. What we're about does not change at all. Uh, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. uh, But we have come so that life may have it to the full. Jesus has come so that my life may be had to the full. And we are his ambassadors. I know as the world around us seems to be grasped and a little bit more fearful and a little bit panicked at times, we hold true to the rock. We hold true to the message that has not changed, that full life is only found in Christ. So the things that you're seeing and the decisions that we're making are not made from those places of panic or fear. They're made from responsibility and a trueness to our principles. We believe that loving our neighbor and being responsible and looking after them is the best thing that we can do to be like Christ. And so we are not physically together, but we are united in spirit. And I'm glad you're here. We're going to continue our series today, The Road to Emmaus. Uh, This is a series that we started several weeks ago. This is our seventh. Uh, It's a series that was supposed to end on Easter morning with all of us coming together and realizing that there's a story to be told about Jesus that all of us have experienced through the Gospels or through our own experiences with Jesus and his message. And so today, we're continuing that, telling about what the recorders and witnesses have experienced and told about who God is, who his son was, and the message that he still has for the world. And I know I am specifically excited today because we are going to be talking about parables. And I know... Parables are something that a lot of us, if we grew up in the church, uh, we know a little bit about, but maybe don't fully understand. Um, To give a really easy definition of parables, this is the English version. Uh, It's a riddle uh, or revealing. It's kind of like this idea of like, once you know what's going on, the truth becomes true. But the Greek word for this is actually the mysterio or mysterion. I should say mysterion. Uh, And it kind of translates the word in English, mystery. Mystery, but it really is not that because a mystery sounds like there's like something to discover, but really all it means is this. It's not something known, but is revealed. So at the beginning, you don't understand it, but then throughout the under, you know, kind of throughout the story, you grasp it. It is revealed to you what's really going on. And parables are about real people or sometimes fictional people, but they're real life events. Um, and they're things that grasp our attention, grasp who and what we deal with all the time, but in fictional senses. And I've always loved the idea of parables, and parables are not a concept that are just purely for the Bible. They're used across all kinds of historical texts and spiritual writings. But Jesus himself and the Bible itself uses parables a lot. And so what I want to do is because I can't take the time to read all the parables because there are numbers, and and I can't reveal or make known to you all the truths that are in all the parables, but I can introduce uh, the parable that we're going to talk about by telling you how Jesus talked about parables, and he told one specific parable itself to explain all his parables, which I thought was really cool. He told a parable to explain a, a parable. It's like inception of parables, uh, which is brilliant um, in the sense of like getting the idea of why parables are important is imperable, in, in, imperative to why or how you get to the truth of the parables. And so I know for me, this section in Matthew 13 is uh, a parable I've heard before, but I didn't realize its full context. 
And so knowing that Jesus talked about parables a lot in his whole mission across his whole journey of three, three and a half years of his, you know, kind of ministry, we need to recognize at the very beginning why he told parables. So in Matthew chapter 13, we get this parable of the sower. And it, this is a really neat time. And I want to remind you that where we came from last week was the Sermon on the Mount, which the Sermon on the Mount, again, is Jesus taught those sections of kind of principles and ideas of the kingdom a lot during his ministry. But in Matthew 5 through 7, he records specifically those teachings in kind of a block set. And so Jesus, again, has this crowd of people very similar to Matthew chapter 5, but in Matthew chapter 13, we find that Jesus goes out on a lake and kind of creates this natural amphitheater with this crowd on the bank so they can hear his words. And then he starts out, and I'm sure that, you know, the crowd is anticipating something amazing. I mean, this guy is healed, and he's taught, and he speaks with authority, and they're ready to hear about this kingdom idea. And this is what he teaches in Matthew 13, knowing that context to this crowd anticipating a ton to come. And this is what he says. Uh, the day Jesus went out on the house, from, the, from the house and sat on the lake, and such a large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, some fell uh, so, so the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in the rocky places where it had uh, did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly. But then was soil, uh, but because of the soil was shallow, uh, when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no roots. Other seed fell along the thorns where they grew up and choked the plants out. Uh, still, other seed fell on good soil where it was produced a crop a hundredfold, or sixty or thirty was was sown. Whoever has ears. Let them hear. And the disciples came to him. And this is what's so neat. This is what's so fun. When you read the Gospels, and I hope you've been diving in and kind of reading this, you see the humanity in the disciples. You see us. You see me. You see you in this. Because here's what they come and say. Why do you speak in parables? Why do you come and speak to people in parables? Pause. This is basically what the disciples are saying. They're like, hey, Jesus, they're not getting it. This isn't working. The crowd wants the Sermon on the Mount. They, they want those teachings. Those make sense. This is not working. Can you imagine critiquing Jesus in his choice? I mean, if this doesn't point out exactly what Jesus just said in the parable, that these words, the things that are going to be sowed out there, these things that he is going to be saying and doing are not going to be completely understood. He's just said this. Now, we get that now because we have been revealed to us a lot that that's what the parable is talking about. He's talking about the good news of Jesus, the coming of the kingdom. But because of the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. You get it. They don't get it. I understand. Whoever has been given more, then will have an abundance. Whoever has not have, then they will have to be taken away from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear and understand. In them is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For these people's hearts have become callous. They have heart. They have hard, hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. 
Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. This is where Jesus is starting to show where the rubber hits the road. The parables are going to describe situations and and ideas about the kingdom that are going to divide people. They're going to reveal things. So here's the thought. It's not a mystery, but a grand revealing. It's not a mystery. It's not a mystery what's going on here. It's a grand revealing. He's saying these parables are actually going to reveal things. In fact, parables are revealing of Jesus and the kingdom. And if people don't want Jesus and the kingdom, they just want healing, or they just want to be better, or they just want to feel better, or they just want to know more, and they don't actually want Jesus and his kingdom, it's going to divide. It's going to kind of show who's on what side. And the disciples are feeling that tension. These parables are doing their job. They are doing their job of revealing who's actually listening for the right things, who's actually seeing the right things. Now, why this is so powerful is when you start going back and looking at the context of why Jesus is quoting Isaiah. Now, the part of Isaiah that Jesus is quoting is chapter 6. It's one of the most powerful sections. I encourage you to go look at it. Isaiah is actually called into uh, uh, servitude with Jesus in this throne room experience. And in there, he's pulled into this basically throne room idea of, of God on high. And he can't even look, can't even talk, can't even do anything in the presence of this holy God. And then God asks for a messenger to go and tell the people that he is God and that he has a plan. And Isaiah says, here am I, I'm I'm a man of unclean lips. And there's this whole interchange. But then right after that, God gives him his calling. And his calling is so sad because he's basically like, I need you to go tell the people this mission, but they're not going to listen to you. It's not going to work like we hoped. In fact, they're they're not going to hear you and they're not going to be able to see you. And so when Jesus quotes this, he's basically saying, I am, I am the voice of God, but these people are refusing to hear me, just like Isaiah. So, why does that matter? Well, it's because Isaiah is a big book. And if you read on in Isaiah, Isaiah actually uses parables to talk about the coming need for Jesus. Not just the words to say that God is real, not just this idea of this, but there's a chasm between what people see on this earth and what God knows to be real and true and what he wants to be true in the world. And so Isaiah tells that message, but then longs for the person of Jesus, the savior of Jesus, this godly son of man and son of God to come. And he records these words in a parable form Not just New Testament has parables, but the Old Testament does. In fact, that's so key to understanding that Jesus is not teaching in a new way, but is using Old Testament kind of ideas and and methods to to hopefully open the eyes and ears of the people. Listen to what Isaiah says in, in chapter 55, using a parable type language to describe the need for Jesus, that Jesus himself is hoping that the crowd will hear in Matthew 13. Here's what Isaiah says in chapter 55, just a few chapters a good chunk of chapters later in in Isaiah's mission. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. Go to our God for he will freely pardon. And listen, 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. He knows the difference. I need help. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, says God, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is where the parable starts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song because of you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of thorn bushes will grow the Jupiter. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown and an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Now, if you know just a little bit about it, and if you're remembering our study from John, and if you're remembering why the word would be such a big deal, you need to remember two things. And if you have time, go and look this up. Genesis 1, God uses the word to separate nothing and to create something. He uses his words. He could stretch out his hand. He could do something, but no, he speaks light. It speaks creation into being. Then John, the gospel writer, connects that idea of creation in the first to new creation in Christ and says God is using his son as the new word of life. He is the word, the light, the life of the world. He is recreating, reclaiming, reshooting, and he's doing his everlasting change that's coming through that new word. And it's through a parable all the way back thousand years before Jesus even comes onto this planet. There is a parable that describes what Jesus is going to bring. And so when Jesus quotes this in Matthew 13, the crowd, if they know anything about what they have heard, they would be hearing that this is different than just some wisdom. This is different than just some morality. This is different than just some physical healing. It's a deeper, bigger message. Jesus' full mission is in the missing, is the missing piece. That's the full mission, is the missing piece of what's going on in the parables. If you understand Jesus' full mission, when you read the parables, they make more sense. When you don't have that, they are difficult. That's why when, when these, these, these crowds are hearing them for the first time, even the disciples, knowing the private conversations, knowing they've had a little bit more intentionality with Jesus, they get them a little bit. But the crowds that haven't, all they're seeing is the surface level things. All they're hearing is just the, the, the very deep, shallowest parts of what maybe Jesus' ministry is all about. And so these parables are Jesus going to the next level. He's trying to pull them in into a further, deeper understanding. Not trying to create secrets, but trying to do deep revealing. The good news of Jesus changes everything about biblical parables. It just changes everything about biblical parables. It makes us understand that each time we hear a parable in the New Testament, it is Jesus trying to draw us into a deeper revealing of the kingdom, a deeper revealing of who he is and why he's important. And it's not a new method of teaching. It's him confirming the teachings that have been done all along about a need for something greater. These deep revealings, these deep mysteries of God, which is so incredibly Cool. And you see why I wanted to take the time to do that before we jump into the one that I want to focus on for just a few minutes here. 
uh, today. And the reason why that's important to know all that is because when we get to this later parable, one of the last parables that Jesus teaches, uh, and it's a parable that I think has some incredible hope in it, but also some incredible difficult difficulties in it. I think it's one of those parables that you can read and be kind of discouraged, or you can read and be encouraged. But I think in today's time, in these times that we're in right now, these are the types of parables that have deep truths that are worth remembering, worth being going, okay, this is still true. This is still real, and I need to cling to this. I need to know what I need to do, and I need to do it even when it's difficult. And so we're going to focus on Matthew 22, a parable about this banquet. It's a wedding banquet. And just like most characters, just like uh, most parables, they have characters that, that are kind of are a kind of God, father, um, you know, master language. And then they have servants. And then they most of the time have people that are supposed to respond in them. And there's normally parts or different methods, but that's definitely most, most of them are like a master type figure, landlord, father type figure, people that are servants or that are serving that, that person. And then those that are supposed to respond. And we find this parable to have a very similar method. So it starts out by just saying this, Jesus spoke to them again. See, we see that he uses parables starting in Matthew 13, but then he's continuing to use them throughout. And again, we're getting later and closer. And this is one of the last teachings that really starts to get the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to say, we need to take this guy out uh, because he's really speaking too, too greatly about things now beyond just his own region, but about the world and this new life. And he's really going to make things difficult for us. So this is what Jesus said. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Can you feel Isaiah 6 in this? Just trying to point this out. Just trying to point this out. They refused to come. They had eyes, they had ears, but maybe they did not hear it. Then he says this, when the king came, uh, came to, to see the guests, he noticed that a man was, oh, no, we missed a couple sections here. So, uh, oh, I totally forgot. I didn't put all this in there, did I, Jed? <laughs> so here's the cool thing, and this is what I want to back up. So here's, here's what's so neat about this. When Jesus points this out, can you feel the tension in this, in this man who, this king, this master that's trying to put on this amazing banquet for his son? He asks guests to come. They don't want to come. He sends his servants back out there. They don't want to come. And basically what ends up happening is at the end of the whole thing, the master wants to kill those that haven't responded. And then he invites anyone and everyone he can possibly get to come into the banquet. Now, what's important about this story is two thoughts. One is that some people don't come that are asked. And the wrath of the master, the wrath of this father, uh, of this, this guy, is, is very much so just. Like, he is prepared. And said, in fact, the scripture says he, he has fattened calf and an oxen butchered. Like, there's the table is set. The time is ready. And then there, they're supposed to respond and, and see this as a great bounty and blessing. But they do nothing. And so he's forced to invite everyone in. Now, it's not force, but it's a sense of like, all right, next group, next group. And the context of this is like he's hoping that the celebration will come in waves. That it's the first to hear will come in joyously. The second will come in even more excited. And the last, thinking that they've been left out, now will, will come in and they will actually be invited. And that everyone will respond and be a part of the banquet. But the story just doesn't end that way. I, I wish 
it did because what we end up finding is that there are people there, but we get this section at the very end of 22 and it's this, but when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man that was there not wearing wedding clothes. He asked him, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. He knew, he knew. And the king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And this is where that this parable just turns on its head. Just has this moment where you're like, wait a second. I thought this, this guy was inviting everybody. I, I didn't know there was a dress code. What's the dress code? I, 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 now I'm scared to go to a wedding banquet, right? And the truth be told, culturally, there's a whole bunch of things to say about respect and understanding that if you showed up to a job interview in your pajamas, maybe not today, but most days, if you just showed up unprepared without real taking it with a grain, with actually responsibility, understanding the brevity of what you're, what you're doing, that it's disrespectful and missing the whole point. It's kind of like you show up and you're like, yeah, sure, whatever, I guess I'll go. And for God, that is the most disrespectful thing you can do. Now, when you think about the context of the story without knowing the fullness of the gospel, it can be a little scary to hear that. But then if you think about a father responding to someone who takes the gift of Jesus flippantly, who takes that Jesus came, laid down his life selflessly, gave everything he had, and did it without sinning, and then offered this gift, this opportunity for everyone to come from the time of Isaiah and before, through the time of transition now into the kingdom, that everyone, and eventually through Paul's writings, even the Gentiles and those that were far from the first to hear into the kingdom, you see how this would not be a way you would want to be caught responding to such a great gift. You would be saddened, heartbroken, disgusted, and probably righteously frustrated and angry. And so when you hear that this man is tied up and thrown out with a weeping and gnashing of teeth, you hear a man that is reaping the rewards of his attitude and his posture and his response. And that's why it concludes with many are invited, but few choose to take this seriously. Few choose to see what's really at stake. So many miss the point. They have eyes to hear. They do not see. And they have ears to hear. They do not hear. And these parables beat on our calloused hearts to get us to listen to the fullness of the revealing of the kingdom in Jesus and his kingdom to come. Every day we have to work on this. Every day. One of my favorite things about the way that this parable ends is not actually how the parable ends itself. It's what Matthew chooses to record right after making this incredible point that Jesus made in, the, in, in this parable of the wedding banquet. He ends with four little segments of conversations that happen right after this parable is told. He interacts with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then just common people that are just asking some questions. What do we do? And then Jesus himself gets the last word, which is awesome. He starts by being asked this question. Uh, Jesus is a part of a time in history when the Roman world is taking over Israel and is lording over them. In fact, 
mercilessly lording over them, uh, killing them at will, making them do certain things, taxing them to death, and it's causing all kinds of political strife. And so this very smart guy comes up and says, are we supposed to pay Caesar our taxes? And it's meant to be a trap. All these things that come after this parable are meant to be a trap. It's meant to say, like, I can't accept your invitation, Jesus, to come to the banquet because these are my objections. I have other things that I'm worried about other than coming to be with you, other than being and accepting what you're ultimately going to be. There are other things around me that cause me to pause. And so Jesus, knowing that it's a trap, would say this back to him, and it's a brilliant thing, where he's like, give me a coin. They give him a coin. And Jesus looks at the coin and says, whose who's name, whose face is on this? And they're like, Caesar. And he's like, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and then give to God what is God's. And it's a brilliant answer, because basically what he's saying is like, sure, Caesar can have this little bit of gold, but give to God what is God's. And, and in that moment, they know what he's saying. Everything that is you is actually supposed to be given back to God. So Jesus answers a physical question with a deeply spiritual answer. He answer, He's like, yeah, give that little piece of gold back, but don't forget to give your whole heart and your whole life back to God. And I'm sure the Pharisees are like, dang, that was a really good answer. That was a really good answer. So then the Sadducees step up, or the Pharisees, and, and, and then they step up and they ask their question, and their question is so much more complex. It basically comes down to this line. There was a tradition at that time that if a man had a wife and he died, that the brother of that man, if there was a, a, a living relative that was a brother, had to take that wife in as his own. And so they set this crazy scenario up where this woman, basically because her husband keeps dying, at the end of her life when she dies, she has seven husbands now. And because of the death of the previous, she had to be passed on and basically taken care of by the next and bound to them. So then their question is, when the uh, dead rise and when you know the the basically this all comes back which the pharisees believed that they, that would that day would actually happen and he's a whose wife will uh, this woman be and <laughs> i mean there are certain things that i would not want to challenge jesus on because i feel like he would just have a way greater understanding and they obviously don't know who jesus is at this point because they would have never asked this question because jesus knows what heaven looks like and jesus knows what it's going to be like so this question is baffling to them because they are grasping at straws in their understanding fully of what what heaven will be like other than just knowing it's going to be a, a place that god will reign and so they're like who's who Whose wife, you know, will she be, and uh, or who's, you know, who will be her husband? And he basically goes like, "Hey, there's no husbands and wives in heaven. Just so you know, that's just not. Uh, they're more like angels, and that's uh, just different up there. And also, by the way, uh, I'm not gonna raise the dead. Um, the people that uh, know me and follow me, they never will die. Uh, I'm the God of the living, not the dead. And in one phrase at the end of this question, it just shuts them down. And it reveals, though, it reveals their heart. The Sadducees in the first story are, are concerned about the physical world being made right. The Pharisees are concerned about all things that will be made right in the end. In these two moments, boom, Jesus shuts them down. He's like, hey, why don't you just come to the banquet? Why don't you just come into my kingdom? Why don't you just trust me? And then it's like, as if they're like grasping at straws, they have this one card left that they're like, all right, all right, ask the big one. I get the, get the big one out there. And that's where we get this famous saying, like the last, you know, smart guy steps up and he's like, all right, good job on those last two. But here's my question. What's the greatest command? And Jesus, I, I don't think he hesitated at all. I don't think he had to take time. I think he was ready and he knew it. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
And, and when they heard this, uh, none of them could fight back. None of them could push back. They knew it was right. And the kingdom of heaven had focus. It had a goal. It had a drive. And it was not, it was not, it was not flexible. It was not something he was like swayed on. It wasn't sure he was unsure of. It wasn't something he had to think about. It was so plain and simple and straight to the point. The banquet that you're being invited in is to love God and to love others. It is not about husbands and wives. It's not about dictators, rulers, bad governments, bad powers that be. It is about this. Love God and love others to the best of your ability. And I, I just think the, the crowd had to just be like, holy cow, this is just, this is amazing. And then as if Jesus has got everybody ruffled enough, he asks his question to the Sadducees and Pharisees. And his question is very simple. He's like, who do you think the son of man will be? Who do you think the coming Messiah will be? And they said he will be the son of David. And in that moment, Jesus knew he had them. He had them because he knew that they thought that the Messiah would come as a man and he would come as in the lineage like a ruler and a dictator over Rome and one that would have all wisdom and be able to reveal all things and he would set up his kingdom right here and right now. And Jesus knew they had missed it. And what they missed was the thought that a physical thing like money could be the thing that God was most concerned about. But what he wanted was everything in them. What they were most concerned about was physical relationships, context now. And God is going, the context of relationship is so much bigger than you've experienced in heaven. And what you're worried about now is little rules that might change your day to day when I'm worried about the biggest love language of them all, loving like God and loving the people around you like God. And I'm most concerned about that because you've missed that who you think you need is a physical king, but what you really need is a Lord who will change you and mold you and give you a new heart and new life. And I think Paul's words reveal that truth, that they kind of encapsulate everything that we've talked about today and everything that these parables are trying to point to, that there's a new way to live that is fully revealed in Jesus and that we now know the mystery of, and that we have to choose to live in. Regardless of the things that are going on, the turmoil around us that sometimes draws us into thinking that it's about our context now, we have to see the bigger picture and choose to invest our life where we can, without excuses, without complete knowledge sometimes or understanding, but knowing that it's a simple focus of this kingdom to love God and to love others to the best of our ability and to put Jesus back on his throne anytime we try to make it anything other than that. And this is what Paul records for us in chapter 13 of Romans to Gentile people like us in a turmoil and tumultuous time that he's writing this. These are his words to those believers and I think they ring true to us. This is all the more urgent for you now. For, for now, how late it is. The time is running out. Wake up. Our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will be here soon. 
So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes. Put on shining armor of right living. I love that. The shining armor of right living. It shines, it reflects, it reveals. It's not what it's doing to your heart. It reveals who God is, what, what this world is all about. These right things. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. This is more important than ever right now. Choose to see that darkness will reveal your light like armor, like shining things. Don't participate in darkness, wild parties, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, or immoral living, and quarreling and jealousy. Paul said, let's just put it in our context. Don't give in to the panic and fear. Don't give in to your own selfishness, your own brokenness, your jealousy, the things around you that can pull away your faith and your hope. Don't give in to that. That was darkness. This is now. This is now. Don't participate in that. But do this instead, Paul says. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that phrasing. This is the New Living Translation. Clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself even think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Don't let yourself even think about it. Don't go there. Social media is going to try to change it. The radio might have changed it. You might even have friends in your life that are trying to change it. Your internal thoughts you may wake up and have to put on, clothe yourselves with the presence of Jesus. And I think that is the thing that I want. Every day, clothe yourselves with the presence of of Jesus. Every day, clothe yourself with the presence of Jesus. Every day, clothe yourself with the presence of Jesus. He is here. He sees Rome. He sees the difficulty. He sees the virus. He knows what's going on. Put back on your hope. Your hope has never been in him. Have eyes to see him. Have ears to hear his voice, even in the darkest times. And then the kingdom is revealed in the good news of the presence of Jesus, our Lord. This is what the kingdom is all about. This world right now is trying to tell us all kinds of things. They got all kinds of questions. We have uncertainty. We have difficult times, but the kingdom is fully revealed. We may have those questions, just like the Sadducees and Pharisees, just like those people that are saying, look, I got this question about what to do, how to respond. I got this question about what to do, how to respond. And I love what Jesus' answers are. Give back to God what are his. Listen, I am the God of the living. Listen here, love God and love others. Listen here, I am not a man. I am Lord. I am Lord of your life. This is the kingdom of God that you and I are in. Man, that should fill you with confidence today. Man, that should fill you with hope. And on Easter morning, that is what we are celebrating. That God did not stay on afar. He did not stay in the pages of, of Isaiah, but came and is everlasting now. A hope that goes on forever, that all generations can trust in. No matter what comes, pandemic or not, we stand firm in Him clothing ourselves every day and running away from the darkness, not indulging even the thought of it and putting him on every morning and letting our lives reflect him like shining lights in the darkness we do. And these parables I think are powerful and God is still using them mighty, mighty ways. I hope you'll read a few more. Let the mystery be revealed. Let that, that understanding of the fullness of the kingdom of God seep in. You guys, this is a time more than ever, I believe, for your faith to prove its worth, 
for not to be ruined by fear and panic, but the principles that God has founded this church, our church, and the global church on. Love God, love others, worship him as Lord, not as a good idea or a hopeful thing, but as something firm and worth our faith. We are faith-filled, fearless, fruitful people. Faith-filled, fearless, fruitful people. We will continue to do that, whether we are all in one place or through the spirit that connects us all and the lordship that is in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask that you drive this deep into our souls, that no matter what we see or hear or the things that happen around us, that the truth of this penetrates into the deepest places and brings that light and hope so that we may live out what you have placed there this belief and hope in you that you are worthy of our faith and trust, that you go before us, that you see all things and are leading us through these dark times. Lord, may we have faith in you. Whatever may comes, we trust you. We love you. As your name we pray. Amen.